Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be doing chapter 6 today. And uh, as you'll remember, that uh, as, as we've read this, is anybody starting to uh, get the distinct impression that maybe the Corinthian church isn't really appreciative of what Paul had done for them? I mean, that's kind of the impression that I'm getting is that, that, that Paul is constantly having to defend himself to the Corinthian church. And it seems like they don't really care much for what he's done. And the truth is, is, is they should have been defending Paul to the opposition. And Paul shouldn't have to be defending himself to them because they're going to having their ears tickled by these false prophets and these false teachers. Now Paul has to defend himself. And that's actually what most of this letter is. And Paul's going to continue on in that, that same defense, and really he's going to focus on that proof of the love that he has for the Corinthian church. How many know that, that Paul loved the people that he served? I mean, you can just see it in his letters when he talks to them, the, the hurt in his heart when things aren't going right. Paul really loved them, and, and he's going to talk about that today, how, how there's been demonstration of his love for them. And really, all Paul wants in return is for them to love him like he loved them. You know, and I don't think that that is too much different than, than any of us. You know, when we love people, we would like to see that in return as well. But Paul is, is saying that, that their love seems to be restricted towards them, and instead they're being influenced by the, the people that are talking in their ears instead of showing love for Paul. And then finally, he's going to go at the end of this round out the chapter with probably one of the most important lessons that, that we can understand as Christians, and that's not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So let's go ahead and get started. 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2 says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable day I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now once again, we see this weird thing where really these couple of verses should have probably been in the last chapter as he's finishing up that thought. Did you guys know uh, the verses and chapters weren't in the original Greek? Has anybody ever seen original Greek manuscripts? I have no idea how they read them. They're literally... There's no spaces between words. Everything's together, no space between. I mean, it's just one giant run-on group of words. And that's multiple sentences, multiple thoughts, multiple paragraphs. So chapters and verses came in later. There was some guy that said, man, this is hard to look this stuff up. We're going to put chapters and verses in it so that way we can make pithy quotes and put it on T-shirts and we know what we're talking about. We know what we're pointing to. That's probably the whole purpose of that. But sometimes it seems like, man, maybe they kind of missed the delineation of what's going on. And, and these two verses seem to fit a little bit better with the end of chapter 5 because you remember Paul ended chapter 5 talking about how they are ambassadors for God, for the minister, and they have the ministry of reconciliation. And, and in that light, they're ambassadors. They have the ministry of reconciliation. And he says that we're working together with him, that's God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Because that was Paul's purpose. That was his ministry, was to, to share the grace of God and to persuade people. And uh, here he wants to remind them, like, look, guys, the stuff that we're doing, we're doing this together with God, and it's most important as we're doing this that you don't receive this in vain. 
And that's a scary thought. This idea of, of receiving it in vain is, let me tell you what, the, what vain translates from it. The word is uh, kinon, it's the Greek word, and, and what it means is to be empty or without content or without result or useless. That means to, to receive the grace of God based on an empty faith or a useless faith or really no faith at all. It's to receive the grace of God intellectually but not actually put your trust inside of it. It means to not really believe what you're hearing. And when that happens, when we don't actually put our real trust in God, if we are receiving the grace of God in vain, what happens is nothing is actually accomplished. That means that you're not made a new creation because your faith was in vain, your belief was in vain. And it, and it, it makes it where the grace of God cannot accomplish inside of you what God intends it to accomplish. The grace of God is supposed to give you freedom. It's supposed to make you a new creation. It's supposed to make you strong and give you peace. But if you don't actually believe it, if your faith is in vain, then there's, there's nothing there for you to receive. It's useless. It's, it's worthless. And it seems to, to me that Paul was under the impression because of the response he's getting, because they were so easily persuaded by these people that opposed him, it seems to me that Paul was concerned that some of the Corinthian believers had, had, had believed in vain. They had received the grace of God in vain. Otherwise, how could they have been so easily influenced by those that came around them saying something a little bit different in their ear. Otherwise, why weren't they defending Paul to those who would oppose him? Because Paul said, you remember the last couple weeks, Paul's like, you guys know me. You guys know my heart. I was right there with you. Why, are you. why are you listening to people that just show up afterwards and start pointing fingers instead of defending me to them? Why am I defending myself to you? So Paul wondered, maybe these people had received the grace of God in vain. They didn't really believe their faith that they expressed was, was no faith at all. It was useless, useless. And to further iterate this point, he says, look guys, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is a quote from um, Isaiah 49.8. You can write that down and look that up later but the idea is this, this is a covenant to the to the people of of israel and the prophet isaiah predicted predicted a time when god would come and save his people he predicted a time when god would come and release them from their their bondage and clear a path for them to restore their fortunes and to once again be his people and god would do all this so that the whole world would know that he was Israel's Savior, that he was Israel's Redeemer. You can read through Isaiah 49 and see kind of how this whole bit plays out, but Paul's quoting from there. And the Jews that, that, that were there, that, 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 that were around, they would have understood this message. The Jews would have understood that this was uh, a prediction that God would one day bring the Israelites out of their exile to Babylon, right? When Isaiah is preaching this, they would have understood that. They're going to bring them out of Babylon. And we know that that ultimately did happen. But we see something interesting here as Paul says, but it's more than that. Not only was it fulfilled then, but it's being fulfilled right now. It's being fulfilled because God sent his son Jesus to come and give his life for us. And he says, so today is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. And if that's you today, 
as you consider your own salvation, you know, one of the things we have to wonder is, are we receiving this salvation in vain? Do we really believe, or is it just something that feels good? Now, fortunately, I know all you guys sitting here this morning, I know that that's not the case, but I think that's something that, that people need to examine. Are they really believing, or is it all in vain? Is it just an intellectual knowledge, or they actually put their faith in God? Because the truth is, and if you're listening online and this is you, you don't want to hesitate any longer. You know, the thing about this, when people want to hold off, and I, I remember when I was a kid, um, I was a teenager, and we still had the idea that I wanted to sow my wild oats, if you will. But I also knew the church, and I knew that it was right. But I saw everyone around me doing all kinds of stuff that, that I had been deceived and the thinking was fun and would be the right thing to do and would be awesome. You know, Somehow, there's always an enemy trying to make you think that all these other things are, are good and you want them and you can't live without them. And I remember thinking like, man, why can't I just know when I'm going to die so that way I can get saved right before I die and then I can do what I want before then. I wasn't always terribly mature. <laughs> Certainly wasn't always a pastor. But I, I thought this stuff. I was thinking this stuff. And the problem is, is that even when you, you think that stuff, that, that question is, uh, you know, I wish I knew I was going to die, when I was going to die because that's the thing. Tomorrow is never guaranteed. You know, if, if I went up to any in this room and said, you know what, you're going to get your salvation, but I need you to sign a waiver that says you're not going to accept it for a year. I don't think any of us would take because we don't know what's going to happen in the next year. Nobody would take that, but so many people do that right now when they reject the gospel or when they believe in vain. The truth is, is that you don't want to hesitate. You don't want to miss the boat. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Now is the favorable time. Favorable? Favorable. When I say it fast, it rolls off favorable. 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 Favorable time. Now is the favorable time. Now's the good time the goodest time <laughs> now is the day of salvation amen and he continues in, in verses uh, three through five and we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry but as servants of god we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions hardships calamities beatings imprisonments riots labors sleepless nights and hunger you know, it's all too common to find out that the reason somebody actually has a problem with God has nothing to do with God at all, but it has to do with someone that was a Christian or claimed to be a Christian and did something that hurt them or offended them or, or did something wrong to them. All too often, uh, people let men distract them from who God is. And even though I think this is the wrong way to think about these things, I think it's the absolute wrong way to think about these things. It's why I make a lot of the decisions that I do as a pastor because I recognize that people do these things. I recognize that, that, that somebody might see something that I'm doing or I, I may even make a mistake or I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not prone to be perfect, but I'm worried that if I do that, it might make someone say, oh, well, he's the pastor. If he can do that, I don't want to be a part of that. And they begin to reject Christianity because of something that I did. And the truth is, is that uh, we see this really all the time. And it's ex especially true of pastors and leaders. 
We talked about in our men's meeting yesterday that each and every one of us are ambassadors for Christ. The moment that you proclaim to be a Christian, you are representing Christ. And whatever you do, people will attribute to Christians and Christ. They'll attribute it to the church. And when people, people profess to be Christians and they lead a bad example, it actually turns people away. And, and think of all the damage that you've heard about these high-level Christian preachers that have affairs or do all these things. And how many people have fallen away because of a man's stupid decision? Now, I think as a Christian, if your faith is in man and not in God, you're in the wrong boat anyway. You need to figure that out. Just because a man has a failure doesn't mean that God's not true. It doesn't mean that God's not faithful. It means that sometimes men screw up. And by men, I mean mankind. Men and women, all of us, do dumb stuff sometimes. But it's not just the big stuff either. It's the little things. You see... You say you're a Christian, but you, you in, a, in, a, in a, a, a lapse of judgment, you say something mean about somebody. Or you say something that's hurtful to them. And now that, that they're like, man, she says she's a Christian. I can't believe she's acting like that. He says he's a Christian. Why would he do something like that? And it begins to impact how they feel. And it's why it's so important that each and every one of us recognize that we are ambassadors for Christ. And we, we can't act hypocritical because people will see that and attribute that to Christ. Because here's the reality. As soon as you profess to be a Christian, every one of your actions, whether good or bad, will be attributed to Christ. And you can't hide that. You can't turn that off. And what's interesting to me is, like we see that today, but Paul was aware of this even then. He says, we put no obstacle in anybody's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul knew this back then, and he wasn't going to do anything to let it get in the way to cause somebody to trip up. He, he ministered and lived in such a way that no fault could be found with his ministry. You remember when he was talking about not receiving anything from the Corinthian church, not because it wasn't his right. He just didn't want to put an obstacle in the way of them receiving what he had for them. And then he goes on, and, and you, when we get into this part where he says, but uh, you know, we didn't put an obstacle away. No fault was found in our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And this is interesting because you remember just a few chapters ago, he said that they didn't have any letters of recommendations. They didn't need any letters of recommendation. They didn't even need to recommend themselves because it was God that commended them. It was God that was the approval. And not only that, it was the, 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 Corinthian, the, the actual Corinthians were his seal of approval. The, the ones that weren't believing in vain, they saw real change in their life. They saw something happen. He says, you know what? I don't need letters of recommendation, external or internal or my own, because of this. But he says, you know what? I will commend ourselves in this. And this is interesting because... You know, the letters of recommendation, the flowery stuff, that would be all the ones that the, the, uh, the people that were coming in and opposing him was going, you listen to this guy, Paul, nobody even recommends him. He doesn't even have any support, any backing. Why would you listen to this guy? He says, well, let me give you this, this commendation for us. But I guarantee you, these are commendations for our ministry that these guys coming in, they're, they're not the kind of commendations that they would want. And he goes on, he says, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions and hardship. How many people would, would go out of their way for that kind of commendation to prove that they were ministers of God? Like, man, I can't wait till life gets really, really rough. I can't wait till I go two weeks without food. 
Can't wait till I get imprisoned or go through hardships to really show that I'm doing what God wants. But Paul's saying, we commend ourselves in this. We went through some crazy stuff. And it's interesting because he starts with, with just uh, kind of normal stuff, right? Endurance, affliction, and hardships. But everybody kind of goes through that stuff, right? All of us have to endure to some extent. All of us have had hardships and afflictions. But then his next three, this is stuff that he, he endured strictly because of the gospel. He says beatings, imprisonments, and riots. These are things that, that, that were commended to him because, because of his ministry. Paul went through a lot. If you guys know the story of Paul, and I know you guys do, but imprisonments, beatings, he was in, like he said, riots, shipwrecks, stonings, all kinds of stuff Paul went through for the gospel. And these things were because of the gospel. Had Paul not been preaching the gospel, he wouldn't have dealt with any of that. And then after he talks about those things, he talks about these things, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. These are interesting because these are the ones that Paul willingly took on. He chose to deal with this stuff for the gospel. Right? You don't really get to, to choose a beating. Those just happen. You don't get to choose when riots happen. They were just there because of what Paul was doing. But these ones, he said, you know what? I'm going to work hard, particularly with the Corinthian church. Right? He worked right alongside. He didn't accept anything from them. He chose to labor for the gospel and to labor among those he was trying to minister to. Sleepless nights. You know, I wonder how much of that was due to, to hardship. You know, maybe they didn't have a place to stay and it's raining. I imagine that would cause a sleepless night. Or, or how much was it where Paul was just up at night worrying about the people that he loved? These people that he's ministering to. You remember how upset he was when he went to meet Titus to find out what was going on there? He wasn't there. He skipped where he was ministering and went to the next town to meet Titus so he could figure out what was going on. Because he cared so deeply about this church and these people. Paul was willing to endure whatever it took for the gospel. And he says, this is my commendation. And I can guarantee you, those guys that are opposing me, these aren't the kind of commendations that they would want. But they should give you no reason to doubt the integrity and the honesty and the sincerity of my love for you and the message that I'm bringing to you. He's arguing that we are true ministers of God. We're not in it for the money. We're not in it for the fame. We're not in it for any of that stuff. We're in it because God loves you. And because of that, so do we. Amen? Then in verse 6 through 7, it says, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the, left, for the right hand and for the left. So now Paul's up. Paul follows up the, the nine difficulties and hardships that he went through for the gospel with nine qualities that make an effective minister of the gospel. And he starts off with purity. You know, the, the idea of purity is to be without compromise, to be without um, uh, contamination. They were morally upright. Paul says, when we came to you, we came in purity. We weren't trying to get around you. We weren't trying to pull one over on you. He says, we came with knowledge. See, that's the thing. Paul actually was an apostle, and, and, and he had the knowledge of what was going on because 
if you remember, Christ stopped him in the middle of the road. Christ spoke to Paul specifically. Paul wasn't coming in hoping and wishing he had things right. What was interesting is Paul says that when he got the message, he preached for several years before he headed to Jerusalem. And when he got up there, turns out he was preaching the same message. Because God's the one that, Jesus is the one that gave him the message. So Paul had the knowledge of what he was teaching. He had the knowledge because of that direct encounter. And then it says he had patience. Now, any of you that have ever had a teacher or a parent knows how important it is for them to have patience with you. That's a, when you're having somebody teach you, that's one of the most important character traits that they can have because when they're impatient with you, it makes you want to push away and turn off. But he says, I came to you with patience. You know, came to you bringing milk when you should have been asking for solid food, but he came with patience. And any of you that are a parent and have kids or you've taught kids or you're a, a leader at your work or whatever, you know how important it is to have patience with people for their sanity and your own, <laughs> truthfully. But he says, we came with patience. And he says, we also came with kindness. Because the reality is, is, is Paul always considered the people he was ministering to as more important than himself. And he always dealt with every single one of them with kindness and showed them the love that Christ would have showed him. And I think for us, when we're looking at these qualities, this is an important one to have, especially when we are trying to minister to people who champion sin. Because that's where it gets tough. You know, it's, 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 it's one thing when you're trying to minister to somebody and, and they're, they're living a sinful life and they kind of know it's wrong, but you're trying to help them get out of it. But it's a completely another thing to, to minister to somebody that not only is, is kind of slipped into a sinful lifestyle, but they champion it. You know, the people that we see on TV right now that, that are up there and, and, and not only telling people they had an abortion, saying they're glad they had an abortion. I just, I just heard a, 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 read an article the other day, the, one of the, I think the lead singer from Fleetwood Mac, she said, if it hadn't been for abortion, there would be no Fleetwood Mac. I'm like, I'd rather there be no Fleetwood Mac than to have that child die so you could have your, your day in the sun. It's hard to have patient and kindness to people with that kind of attitude but the truth is is that we're called to love them either way and hopefully we can show them the right way that's why that's why paul says we're here to persuade people sometimes we have to persuade them we have to try to walk them through it but if you don't show up with kindness with love and patience if you don't show up with purity if you're hypocritical if you're not showing up you're never going to make an impact and he says that they have the Holy Spirit. Everything that, that Paul did was under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, you'll notice that, that some of these up here are actually fruits of the Spirit. Well, if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have the Holy Spirit working inside of you, it's going to be impossible to be patient with some of these people. Impossible to be kind. And then he says, we had genuine love. You know, Paul actually genuinely loved the ones he was ministering to. We see it in his letters that he writes. We see it in his actions. And this isn't superficial love. This isn't so he could get noticed. This isn't the kind of love that, that permits all just to save somebody's feeling. Anybody ever seen that kind of love? Oh, we love them, so we can't tell them they're doing anything wrong because if we, we do, they'll think that we're mad at them. That's why we have an entire world that thinks that you can't love somebody and disagree with them. 
But this was real love. Paul was, we, we've seen his letters. We've seen Paul willing to confront what needs to be, and it tore him up. Gave him those sleepless nights. But he still did it because he loved them. Some people call it tough love. I think that's a stupid thing. It's not tough love. It's just love. You know, if you, if you, if you have somebody that's struggling with a drug addiction and you want to come in and have an intervention and help them get away from it, that's not tough love to tell them they have to stop. That's just love. Because if they don't, it could kill them. It will kill them. And this real love that Paul showed them was a demonstration of the love that Jesus had showed to Paul. And the love that we show others should be a demonstration of the love that Jesus has shown us. Because the truth is, you don't have to think very hard to realize what you've been forgiven of. And the truth is, is we're all just as messed up as anybody else. Or at least we were until Jesus made us brand new. Amen? It says, we came with truthful speech. As we know, Paul didn't come by being dishonest. He wasn't trying to, to be a snake oil salesman. He just spoke the truth to them. And this was regardless of the hardships that he faced, the opposition that he faced. It would have been so easy for Paul going, this is too hard. We're going to make a little money doing this. We're going to alter some stuff a little bit so we can get ahead of the game. But he never changed the gospel to make it easier. He never changed his message to make it easier. He says, we come in the power of God. You know, Paul did miracles were done at Paul's hands because God was working through him. And truthfully, how else could, could anybody have endured what Paul endured without the power of God being active in his life? That's impossible. And then finally it says, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You know, in Ephesians, Paul talks about righteous being, righteousness being a breastplate. And it's interesting to me that righteousness can not only prep you for defense, but it also can prep you to be aggressive. It can prep you to be, uh, uh, to be powerful, to go on the offensive for the gospel. So righteousness allows us to be defensive, but also offensive. Because sometimes you have to be uh, a little on the offensive. Not offensive as in hurt people's feelings, but offensive as uh, aggressive, to persuade people. And the truth is, is if... Uh, you guys have heard me say it so many times, but if we really believe what we say we believe, if we really believe that people that don't get saved are going to spend eternity in hell separated from God, then we should be doing everything that we can to persuade people to say yes to Jesus so they don't have to do that, so they don't have to go there. But the reality is, is that when we step out in righteousness, we're well-equipped soldiers for the gospel, amen, for the kingdom of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 6, 8-10, he says, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. You know, it's a good thing that Paul was equipped with righteousness because he needed to be equipped to go through what he was going through. When Paul was out ministering the gospel, he was experiencing all ends of the spectrum of what could come up against a man. And we see, he begins to see, you know, we were held in honor of some and in dishonor of others. It's actually what he's dealing with right now, right? He should have been held in honor by the Corinthian church, but instead he was being held in dishonor because that's how these, these false prophets and teachers were coming in and pointing fingers at Paul. 
He was praised by his spiritual children, but slandered by those who hated him. And the thing is, is that the, all these things he goes through, they were treated as impostors, but they were in fact true. They were treated as unknown, unfamous. They were, they were treated as, as, as nobodies. Yet the truth is, is they were well-known and well-loved by those who they were ministering to. They were, they were dying, and truth, he's been left to die how many times? I mean, how many times should have Paul died? But he still lived. And he continues through verses 9 and 10, just all these contrasts, punished, not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. The reality is, is this entire section is a contrast of how those who opposed Paul saw his ministry and how God saw his ministry. I mean, I said, you know what, your ministry's poor, but God says, but you're making many rich. They say, you don't have anything, but in Christ we possess everything. This whole thing is a contrast between those two things. And it continues on in verses 11 through 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. And in return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Once again, we have spoken freely to you. There's five other times so far in this chapter that Paul has defended the honesty of what he was saying. We're speaking freely. We're speaking open. We are not lying to you. That, that must have been a big thing. His opposition must have been telling him left and right that Paul, all Paul does is lie to you and deceive you. Paul says that's never how we've done it. We've always spoken freely to you. And then he goes on to say, in addition, our heart is wide open. See, the thing is, is Paul really loved these people. He was always honest with people and he was always loving to them. His heart was wide open. He didn't hold anything back when it came to the Corinthian people. And he demonstrated that by all that he went through. This whole little bit before this saying, look what all I've gone through. This demonstrates my love for you. And like I said, you can look at Paul's letter and you can see that love in every single one of them. That's kind of an identifying mark of, uh, of, of everything that Paul did. You can identify his letters by the love that he demonstrates in them. And he says that our love is not he says that you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. What he's saying is, is that the reason why you're holding back your affection towards me and my team and the, those that are working with me is not because of anything that we've done. He says that you're not restricted by us. We've done nothing that would make you to come against us, to make you think less of us, done nothing to make you think we're deceiving you. All we've done is love you. But he says instead... You're restricted in your own affections. They've been persuaded by those coming in opposing Paul, and they've sided with them instead of trusting Paul. They were easily persuaded. So Paul asked them, widen your hearts also. He says, guys, love me like I loved you. It's an interesting thing. He says, in return, for our hearts wide open, widen your hearts also. But he says, I speak as to children. And as I was studying this, there's actually a lot of different views on kind of what he's saying here. And uh, so I'm not 100% sure what he's saying. Because the, the phrase, I speak to you as children, it could be one of two things, right? It could be like, um, uh, or really one of three things. It could be like 
teaching a child, right? Like maybe with, with our own kids, we have to teach our kids to love. We show them that when someone is kind to you, you're kind in return. When you love someone, when someone is loving to you, you're loving in return. We teach our kids that. Maybe that's what he's doing here. I speak to you as children that haven't learned yet. Or I'm not sure if he's, he's uh, um, talking to them like as his spiritual children. Like I'm speaking to you as my spiritual children. I want you to love me like I've loved you. I'm not 100% sure which, which of that he's saying, and I don't think it really matters. The point is still the same. Is that he loved them, he wants them to love him back in return. Just as I've opened my heart wide to you, I urge you to widen your heart to us also. And I don't think that's too much to ask. It's actually what most of us do naturally. It's why we talked about in the, the offering this morning is that we do it with joyful hearts because it's the natural response. God had opened his heart so wide towards us in sending his son. How could we not open our hearts in return? That's why we give joyfully and that's exactly what he's asking here. Here's the thing. The real danger that the Corinthian church is facing and really than anybody is facing when you're ministering the gospel to them, that if they reject you, then ultimately they're using that as an excuse to reject your message. If they reject us, they can use that as an excuse to reject the gospel. And that's what's happening here. He says, look, we've opened our hearts towards you. We've shared everything. We've shared you the, this amazing gospel. But because they were rejecting Paul, because the people coming in convincing him otherwise, they were actually beginning to reject the message. That's why Paul said earlier, why are you receiving grace in vain? Because they were being persuaded and they were rejecting his message. In church, and anybody listening online, this is not one you want to reject. The gospel is not one that you want to miss out on because it is the only way to salvation. It is the only thing that has the power to save you can't live good enough. You can't live right enough. The only thing that can save us is Jesus coming and giving his life for us to make us brand new and us putting our faith, not in vain, but putting our true faith in that free gift of salvation. And in 14 and 15, we have the do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? Or what apportion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This is one of those, it almost seems like a digression here at the end. It almost seems like he's jumping track. But I think in light of the fact of what Paul was talking about and defending his ministry and that the, the Corinthian church needed to widen their hearts in love, is I think he was also protecting them. Because one of the things that we have to be careful of as Christians is that we don't love people so much that we completely throw away all of our convictions and our beliefs to allow them in. You know, we, we, we see that in many churches right now that are affirming to everything, even though it's in opposition to the Word of God. We need to love them, but it doesn't mean that we, 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 we open ourselves up so wide that we, let, that we no longer uh, become critical of sin, but instead we become accepting of sin in the, the interest of inclusion. And I think that's maybe what Paul's dealing with here. is like, look, we've opened our hearts to you. Open your hearts back to us. 
But we have these other ones that are coming in. They're, they're unbelievers. I think Paul thought of these, these false teachers and, and, and uh, preachers as unbelievers. These ones coming in, the false prophets. And he says, be careful not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He says, look, we've opened our hearts and love to you, but just because someone appears to open their heart and love to you, you need to be careful. If they're an unbeliever, we need to not become partnered with them. Do not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership? This idea of being yoked is, is a partnership. And it's not about not interacting with people of this world. Matter of fact, he dealt with that in the first letter, right? In verses 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since, that would, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's not saying that we can't interact with them at all but we do have to be careful about being partnered with them and the idea here uh this idea here of, of being unequally yoked the picture is of and you know it's it's interesting because in today's day and age most of us aren't understanding of what the the farming culture would look like what you would need a yoke for but here's the idea they would hook up a yoke which is a big thing that goes across the neck of a couple of oxen and they would tie a plow behind it and they would have the oxen move forward and it would plow the land and if you have two oxen side by side, they're, the, they're both big, they're both the same strength, they both have the same goal and purpose, they're the same animal, and they're going to go in a straight line and your, your, your rows are going to be perfectly straight. But when you are unequally yoked, what would happen if we hooked up a donkey next to the ox? Now we have two different strengths on either side. If you could even get them to work together, you're going to start seeing a pull. Because the, the donkey just wouldn't be able to keep up with the strength of the ox. But truthfully, they're different animals. And even more so, donkeys are ornery. They're going to be biting and going after. They're going to be fighting. They're not going to be working together. They don't, they don't have the same goals. You know, they, they don't think the same way. And the same is true as Christians. You know, we can, we can interact with non-believers, but to be partnered with them, to have the same yoke on we're going to see differently. We're not going to see eye to eye. We're going to have different goals. We're going to have different values. So we can, I mean, think about, I, I think about all the people that I've talked to and counseled that, that have gotten married to somebody, a Christian, that married an unbeliever. Thought that they were getting involved in, in, in uh, uh, missionary dating. But the truth is, is that usually what that does is it puts the Christian in a position to be compromised, to be tempted by the sin that seems to be no problem to the one that they just got uh, yoked with. You know, if you're a Christian, do not get married to an unbeliever. Your life will just be hard. You will put up with more stuff than you ever imagined that you could have. And I would go even farther to say, make sure that you guys are at equal levels in your faith as well. Because some people are Christian as in the cultural sense. Like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Christmas and Easter. If you're a, if you're a devoted Christian, you don't want to get involved in something like that either. It's not to say we can't love them and we can't minister to those people. We want them to come all in. But don't become unequally yoked because it's going to cause you problems. But what about opening a business? Don't go into a partnership with somebody that has different values and ideas of what's right is you. Christians don't become unequally yoked with unbelievers. So what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 
All these things that he's saying are polar opposites to one another. They actually don't go together. They can't coexist. Some of them are obvious, right? Righteousness and lawlessness. They don't match. They don't mix. You, if you have lawlessness, you don't have righteousness. If you have righteousness, you don't have lawlessness. You can't have both. Fellowship with light and darkness. The same thing. When you flip the lights on, darkness has to go. You can't have them both at the same time. Look, obviously, Christ and Belial, those are polar opposites. And this one's interesting. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We don't have the same inheritance as unbelievers. I mean, think about that. If you're a believer, you have a, you have a, a promise of eternal security in heaven. And if you're an unbeliever, you have, you have a promise. It's just not eternal security. You're going to be spending eternity in hell away from God. Now what if you, you get married to somebody like that and, and you really do love them, but now you're going to be separated for eternity after life? You don't even have the same portion. But these are completely opposite. And they can't coexist. And it's, it's so important as Christians that we're mindful of that. To be clear, that doesn't mean we can't go out and minister to people. It doesn't mean you can't have, uh, uh, you know, work with people that are unbelievers or, or, or even have acquaintances. But I would be real careful about having really close friends that aren't believers because you're going to have different values. Matter of fact, when I became a Christian and really decided that, and this, this is not when I just called myself a Christian. This is when I actually became a Christian and actually started living for God. I found that so many, even my best friend, We've fallen away because we have completely different ideas of what constitutes a good time. And, you know, we, we just aren't the same people anymore. So, unfortunately, that was one of the casualties of it. But the truth is, is that had I stayed with him, I might be tempted every day to go back into that old style of living. And that's going to be the same as you. It's not to say that you can't have acquaintances or or visit people from work, but be very careful who your close friends are, certainly who you marry, and don't go into business with somebody that's not equally yoked because you're going to have different ideas. And unfortunately, you're just as likely to get pulled down their path, if not more so than you pulling them up towards yours. Amen? Amen. And then finally, we'll end here in uh, verses 16 through 18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He continues on in that thought. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? If you're born again, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? The Holy Spirit lives inside of you which means there's no room for idols. Idols are in opposition to God because just like Jesus said, you can't serve two masters or you'll hate one and love the other. That's what an idol does in your life. Put something in your life and you have to make a choice. You'll either hate one or love the other. You can't serve both of them. But when you're born again, you become a temple of God. And he goes on to says, for we are the temple of the living God. And God said, in this whole section here, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters uh, to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is Paul doing a shotgun quote from the Old Testament. 
The primary things that he's talking about is from Leviticus and Exodus, but there's a couple of other references this could be to. Like I said, it's a, it's a shotgun quote from the Old Testament, throwing it all in there. But he says that, that God's going to make his dwelling among them. That's us, the, holy, the, the temples of the Holy Spirit. God is dwelling among us. And he says, I'll be their God. They shall be my people. But he doesn't say, stay in and just stay with other Christians. Don't ever go out. He says, no, go out in their midst, but be separate from them. We are separate. That means that we can't succumb to the same things. That's the whole thing. We can't be unequally yoked with them. But we do go out in their midst and we stay unclean. And God says he'll welcome us. You know, the truth is, church, as Christians, that, that if we need to walk in repentance, we need to walk in obedience to God. We need to stay unclean. Now, thank God that if we do mess up, we have an advocate. If we do mess up, it's not going to ruin your salvation. But the purpose of being saved is to free you from all that junk, to go out and live in this world and be different, to be a people set apart. So church, I would just encourage you as we look at this, don't get distracted. Amen? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't try to let idols sneak in your temple. Amen? Amen. Well, that's it for today.